0: I'm one tiny grain of sand amidst the infinite beach of the universe and this is planet of the metaphysical conversations
1: and I'm Steve
0: <laughs> welcome, welcome Steve let's talk about your feelings how does it how does it feel to not have a last name It's actually quite quite freeing <laughs> It's a very American thing nothing to weigh you down How does it feel to be one person amidst all of the the ongoing tragedy of of history. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's very Herzog. As if you haven't guessed, today we're talking about Werner Herzog. How you doing, Dave?
1: I'm good. How about you? You seem like you've been busy lately. Yeah, this last week at work has been absolutely crazy, and I messed something up and caused a huge problem. So I had to help
0: help fix that. I was actually off off the grid for most of the week. My family and I took a little like. A little winter break, and went and rented a cabin in the woods up in Casadero. Mm-hmm. This place was only heated by uh, a wood-burning stove, so it was like constantly burning wood. Definitely yeah. cold, but it was kind of it was kind of nice to be watching all of these Werner Herzog films about uh, you know the struggle <laughs> against nature while I was struggling against
1: nature. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> were you but anywhere like,
1: near L- Laguna California? Yeah,
0: I mean Laguna was was probably like half hour south.
1: Okay, because that's we're we're going to talk about Klaus Kinski. And uh, that's where he died in 1991 was in. Longines. Oh, really? Yeah,
0: I didn't know that. So he lived in uh, Marin County. Interesting. Yeah. Les Blank, who um, did Burden of Dreams, the documentary about mm-hmm. the making of Fitzcarraldo that we'll talk about, um, lived in Berkeley. Oh, and interesting. I think, yeah, I think he lived here until he died. So a lot of Bay Area connections.
1: I'm not quite sure what the the first Werner Herzog movie that I remember watching was Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans, which mm-hmm. is a very weird movie. It's his only a second remake that he's made, and it's kind of as much of a, a big Hollywood, big budget movie that he's ever going to get, I think. And mm-hmm. it's sufficiently crazy that it got me interested in watching some of his other stuff but once you start watching his documentaries and you hear his delivery and his voice it's hypnotizing you know he he talks in complete sentences you know he he starts his thought and he completes it in a way that i think is rare nowadays when in the the land of tweets and sound bites like he to me he's
0: one of the like a dying breed of auteurs He has, in some ways, become bigger than his films. And I think the the directors that are at his sort of level of stature and talent are few and far between. Like, off my head, there are very few I can think of. I mean, I guess you could say maybe Tarantino, Coppola, Scorsese.
1: But even they don't have have the prolific output that Herzog has. Yeah. I mean, he's directed over 60 movies. And he just kind of does whatever he wants. He does so many movies. And he's out there when he wants to make a movie. He's out asking for money, getting funding, mm-hmm. uh, finding backers. It's not like he has this huge studio studio machine behind him. It,
0: it, the breadth of what he attempts to to create is is mm-hmm. pretty impressive. Like he he's roving in his interests. and, doesn't seem to be confined to any
1: genre or style. Yeah, I would agree with that. And he, uh, I think I like him for the same reason that I like Kurt Vonnegut. He strikes me as a, a humanist. He's very concerned mm-hmm. with like the human aspect of everything he does. Mm-hmm. And he's, he, you know, the stories behind his movies are often just as incredible as the movies. Mm-hmm. There's a movie called heart of glass. He made where he hypnotized the whole town mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to get the desired effect. And I didn't, I haven't actually seen that movie, but, um, he, he's also directed operas. He he strikes me as being like good-natured and kind, but then he's also... There's a, something underneath the surface where he's obsessive and a little bit sinister.
0: The first time I... My first, sort of first encounter was in college. I, I was a Latin American history major. I'm sorry, Latin American history minor. And we were talking about the rubber boom and mm. Manaus specifically. And Manaus is this was this sort of tiny town smack dab in the middle of the Amazon that for a few years became insanely rich and was called the Paris of the Americas and then it kind of faded into somewhat obscurity for a while because rubber trees were smuggled out of Brazil and planted in Southeast Asia and the, they no longer had a monopoly but in any case Manaus as, as sort of the Paris of the Americas um had had an opera and Became had a lot of the trappings of like European high society, and the opera in Manaus plays prominently in the movie Fitzcarraldo. And so, mm. in this in this Latin American history class, we actually watched Fitzcarraldo, and we watched the less Blank documentary on Fitzcarraldo about the making of the film um, <laughs> because it has so much to do. It's so it's so grounded in that in that specific time of, you know, the the rubber boom in
1: South America.
0: I think the documentary, like to me, is is almost, it's not better than the film. They're like, you have to watch them in tandem.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I watched the documentary right after watching Fitzgerald and this is the first time I'd watched Fitzgerald all the way through. And it's really incredible the lengths he went through. And I, I love that at first he had uh, Mick Jagger cast in the movie. Yeah. And then he, he dodged out and it's like, I oh, just can't replace Mick Jagger. Yeah. So he got rid of the character. <laughs> the bits that they showed in the documentary, he almost struck me as like a, a type of Renfield character who was mm-hmm. sort of deranged and hanging off the, the main character. Yeah, um, yeah totally. But uh, in, in the movie, a man got shot by an arrow by angry natives because they were in the <laughs> middle of a, a border war. During the and filming of the movie. During the filming of the movie, what did I say? <laughs> then a man got bit by a, a snake, a poisonous snake, and had to cut his own foot off in the moment oh in God, order to save God. his own life. <laughs> I think it's fascinating
0: because I think that the the making of Fitzcarraldo is a perfect encapsulation of what makes Werner Herzog like so special, right? Mm-hmm. So plops down in the middle of these border disputes yeah. and this larger sort of geopolitical struggle within the area of. Peru, Ecuador, uh, Brazil, and then the varying sort of tribal disputes that are going on. And immediately has to like, like basically learn about (laughs) all of the like local politics and people making these wild assumptions about, you know, he's going to come in and like be a harbinger of genocide and all all this crazy stuff. You know, he's, he really does try to, I think, Uh, do right by the people in the areas where he's filming, but has to Mm -hmm. then relocate because there's a war erupting basically. (laughs) And it just takes forever. And like, he just keeps going, you know, and it's just incredible to see the persistence with which he, he is willing, like how he believes so strongly in the, the idea of what he's creating, that he is willing to just go to the ends of the earth to make it happen.
1: Yeah. Like you said, it took years. I think it took four or five years to get the movie made. And just to recap the plot of the movie, which I guess we should get to. It. <laughs> yeah. in the movie. The, this character Fitzcarraldo is Fitzcarraldo is obsessed with opera and he wants to bring opera to the natives of South America.
0: So he's, he's Irish, right? I think
1: supposedly yeah. in the movie, <laughs> although Klaus Kinski has <laughs> quite, quite the German <laughs> accent, but um, yeah, he's based on an, a, a real person who is Irish who did this. So he, he, he buys a river boat and brings it up river and has a plan to take it over a mountain to an inaccessible river so that he can he inter- so that he can um begin the rubber trade on that river and then use the money to build his opera Werner herzog being the auteur that he is <laughs> he actually took a riverboat that was bigger than the one than the that the guy did in real life and he used the the natives as extras and actually moved it over the mountain <laughs> it's
0: He's, he like refused to use miniatures because he 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 said people won't believe it like people people can sense when something is real. And so we have to actually move this boat because or else it's just going to feel fake. And <laughs> but in the real Fitzcarraldo took the boat apart. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> Herzog was like, "No, we're not going to take the boat apart. We're going to just lift the whole thing as is over the mountain."
1: Well, the, and the whole genesis was this vision he had of bringing the boat over. So yeah, he 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 went hard mode in a way that the original guy didn't even do. It's <laughs> <That's> incredible. <laughs> so Klaus Kinski,
0: like the so Klaus Kinski <laughs> is is the star of *Fitzcarraldo*, but what was the star of, I believe, four of Werner Herzog like mid career movies, like his mm-hmm. his some of his biggest movies. And and one of the sort of defining features of the filming of this movie is that Klaus Kinski is a madman in real life and is yeah. insane. And apparently one of the like chiefs of the tribes that they were working with, like offered to kill Klaus Kinski <laughs> and, and Herzog thought about it and then said, no, I don't
1: think we'll kill him. <laughs> now, Klaus Kinski is an interesting guy. He, he 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 was found by Herzog doing live... Well, he was found originally seen in this war movie where he uh, did a performance as a lieutenant who has to execute one of his men. A bad lieutenant? Um, <laughs> and uh, when he went to hire him for uh, Aguirre, The Wrath of God, which is the first movie he did with him, mm-hmm. Kinski... Is touring Germany doing a one-man show is Jesus, where he just screams at the audience. <laughs> they have a clip of it in one of the document in the documentary about Kinski that he made, where he's screaming at the audience, I am not your superstar. Oh my and god. Like, threatening him. But uh, That's they amazing. lived they lived together for a while. Herzog ended up doing a documentary about Kinsky eight years after Kinski died. Mm-hmm. And in the documentary, he goes to visit the house that he lived at with Kinski. And he explains how Kinski locked himself up in the bathroom for 48 hours (laughs) and just screamed the entire time and reduced everything down to dust. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Kinski later wrote a book where he he wrote all sorts of really nasty things about Herzog. And Herzog came up to him. He's like, why would you say all these things about me? He's like, nobody would buy the book if I didn't write bad things about you. But Herzog recounts one time he was so frustrated with Kinski he seriously considered firebombing the guy's house. (laughs) I mean, you can, and you look into the guy's eyes, you can just sense how mad he was. He was nuts. Yeah, But
0: I mean, it's, it, it, it definitely begs the question, like that, that the combustibility of that relationship, like, Mm -hmm. was that necessary to create such amazing work? Because you look, you look at these films Mm -hmm. and like, they have an energy to them that you, you just, very rarely see, you know. They obviously like like that tension like pushes both of them. Now, I didn't watch Aguirre, so maybe you can talk about that
1: film a little bit. So, the story of Aguirre is about Don Lope de Aguirre who takes over an expedition to find El Dorado. And it also takes place in the rainforest. This was sort of Herzog's first foray into the South American rainforest. Mm-hmm. And uh of course <laughs> Agiri gradually goes crazy and drives everybody off (laughs) but the movie ends with him on a raft just ranting at monkeys about how he was going to create the master race and marry his daughter and all this crazy stuff but the shots of the monkeys are amazing because it's just really like it's not something that you would be able to conceive of and do properly in like CG Mm -hmm. and there were just really just dozens of these monkeys on this tiny raft and Kinski's just screaming at him, and somehow it Mm -hmm. seems you know so right. But the movie only cost three hundred seventy thousand dollars to make, and at one point they had to go back and redub in some dialogue, and Kinski refused to do his redubbing unless Werner Herzog uh, agreed to pay him a million, a million dollars, or whatever (laughs) currency it was. So they had to dub in somebody (laughs) else's voice. Uh, He had this weird lopsided walk in parts of the movie. And Herzog ended up using it in a later movie and building off of it by having Kinski train with this really deformed polio stricken man. <laughs> wow. I'm telling you, man, it's it's just, they're crazy. Kinski refused to act in wide shots because he thought that the only thing beautiful in nature was the human face. And these are wide shots of Machu Picchu, one of the most incredible, like beautiful places on earth. And so Kinski wasn't in the wide shots. <laughs> that's, it's funny. Cause that's, you know, one of
0: I would say one of the sort of defining narrative things that Her- Herzog comes back to over and over again is the the struggle between man and nature, and he clearly like reveres nature. Like I think Herzog mm-hmm. thinks that nature is is a formidable opponent, right? And not that nature has to be it has to be a, a you know a battle, but that nature is always pitted as as much of a character in the films
1: mm-hmm. as
0: the people. So it's funny to have
1: have those two sort of conflicting philosophies at play. <laughs> Well, he's talked about the voodoo of the location. And mm-hmm. that was the reason why when he filmed Kit Fitzgeraldo, it needed to be, you know, four or 500 miles from the mm-hmm. nearest city. Cause mm-hmm. he was like, if it was only 40 miles from the nearest city, nobody yeah. would really take it seriously. <laughs> it, well, he, he believed, yeah,
0: he also believes like that it, it affects the actor's performance. Like if mm-hmm. the actors aren't in the actual location, they won't. Like their performance won't reflect that on a on a sub-level, right? And so they need they need to be in the place they that they are in the film. Before we move on to talking about some of the non-Kinski films, let's talk about Nosferatu. So this is one <laughs> of his two remakes, right? And it's the mm-hmm. remake of the uh the Murnau film from 1922, which is
1: arguably the most famous silent film of all time. And I've heard it called by people like the least need of an update. Mm-hmm. Like it still holds up really well. Mm-hmm. Now, um, neither so, of us watched the original, right? I didn't. No. So we, I watched we part, it years part ago, part but the, not not long, not close enough to where I could talk about it. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it's hard so, to really compare them, but I, I, you know, the this version was beautiful. Like it was really captivating.
1: So, so the plot of the movie is: there's this little girl. And she's lonely, and she, uh, her, her next door neighbor has a, an automatic vacuum that runs over a squirrel, which gives the squirrel superpowers. Then uh, the super the super powered squirrel ends up bringing her and her parents back together. You know, actually, that Nelly made me watch the movie Flora and Ulysses <laughs> part way through <laughs> part way through Nosferatu, so I think I might be getting confused.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I love
1: that like interlude, like like you, it's an
0: intermission, <laughs> right? And then you get like a little palate cleanser. <laughs> uh,
1: no, so it's the it's the Dracula story, um, but it's very much the Dracula story is filtered through the original Nosferatu Nosferatu movie. Everything's really modest and grounded. Yeah, I, I I think I texted you and
0: said that I felt like it was the most like plausible of the Dracula tales I've ever seen, and by that I mean that at every turn you can kind of be like. Okay, I can see why that character
1: made that decision. Well, and for a vampire movie, it's not really that gruesome. There are mm-hmm. some scenes of Dracula sucking on the neck of Lucy, who uh, is the stand-in for the Mina Marie character. He kind of combines her and the Lucy character from mm-hmm. the original story. Um, but really, there's hardly any blood in the movie. But sp- the,
0: you know, Without going into spoiler spoiler territory on this, though, the ending is quite different than, than the actual Bram Stoker Dracula. Correct? Yeah. One thing that
1: struck me is Van Helsing is useless. I know, right? He's always made out to be like this superhero. And Hugh Jackman made a movie about him as being (laughs) like this superhero. Uh, And in the book, he's really like the driving force of the plot once he comes into the story. Mm -hmm. And, in this one, he's really useless. He just stands around going, we need to verify this with science. And yeah, I do like that,
0: that, Lucy was was kind of turned into the heroine of the story and becomes the real driver of the plot. So that that's kind of cool to see, you know, turned into sort of a female driven, yeah, film at the end.
1: Now, what's what's interesting to me too is in the original story, the that character's name is Mina and her friend is mm-hmm. Lucy. And in the movie, there's a character named Mina, but it's a young guy who ends up dying. So it, it's just a weird. Change. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We talked about this a little bit off
0: air, but there's there's really a striking scene towards the end of the film filtered through our current time of living in the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, the (laughs) one of one of the parts of this plot is that Dracula kind of brings the plague along with him wherever he goes. Mm -hmm. Um and so there's there's a scene of people that are that are already know they're sick and they're doomed to die, and they're just kind of out amongst the sea of rats, like having this fancy meal. And it's really, really, really unsettling to think about the sort of like debates that we're having now about <laughs> like eating outdoors and, and getting back to like, quote unquote, life is normal. And I don't know, I was I, that kind of took my breath away a bit.
1: Yeah, that was definitely, I think, for me, the most striking scene of the mm-hmm. movie that and when he sneaks up on Lucy, when she's sitting in her her vanity and like his shadow precedes him by like 30 seconds. The visuals yeah. in this movie
0: are just incredible like it really is like a visually striking innovative film
1: but ebert described the film he said here's a film that does not that does honor the seriousness of vampires no i don't believe mm-hmm. in them but if they were real here's how they must look
0: yeah right. yeah i mean they're definitely i mean i think it's de- like derived from the the look of the original nosferatu but mm-hmm. in a lot of ways deviates from the the now kind of like standard vision of what dracula looks like which i think is cool
1: and, uh, yeah, he's definitely not somebody that, like, teen girls would swoon over. Like, yeah, he's like really Dracula monstrous. at some point got
0: turned into this, like, sexual being, right? Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, you can kind of see, like, thematically why, but, like, it never really sits right, you know?
1: No sparkly vampires here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I feel like Klaus Kinski was sort of born to play this role. I mean, he yeah. really inhabits it. Totally. It's going to haunt
0: my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on and talk about... Two other films that star Bruno S. Now, you watched the Enigma of Casper Hauser, and I watched uh, Strocheck. They both mm-hmm. star Bruno S. And tell us a little bit about this actor and why Werner Herzog had him star in in both of these roles.
1: So he spent twenty three years in an insane asylum. He was the son of a prostitute, and Her- but Herzog insisted he was never insane. And if you watch these movies, like the performances are really striking and they feel really real. It feels really authentic to the point that people accused. Herzog of exploitation and when he made Casper Hauser he stayed in costume all through the shoot and Herzog describes coming in and finding him sleeping on the floor a couple times. Herzog also uh, the place he discovered him was on a documentary about street musicians called Bruno Blows His Horn. Casper Hauser is about a guy who it's based on a historical event of this guy who sort of appeared in town one day and claimed he had been he had a note that explained mm-hmm. that he had been. Uh, trapped in a basement and not allowed to leave for his whole life. He was 17 years old mm-hmm. uh, and he only had a toy horse to occupy his time. And the only, one of the only words he knew was horse, <laughs> but uh, in that he was devoid of all contact, except for a man who just would wear a black overcoat and a top hat. to fed him. And there was, there was this debate over like, why was he locked up? Was he a royal bastard? Was it all a scam? Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie, the enigma of Casper Hauser takes it very, takes it very much at face value Mm that he is who he says he is. But uh, in a lot of the movie is derived directly from the text of letters written by the people who were involved. Uh, There's a really striking scene in the movie where there's this logician who's trying to teach him about the finer points of logic. And the guy's like really proud of himself, right? And he's telling, Mm -hmm. there's two towns. There's one where people only tell the truth and one where people only lie. And you meet a guy on the road and you have to figure out what town he's from. What what do you, what would you ask him? And he's looking for this really complex log, logic logic question, logic answer involving a double negative. And Casper Hauser's like, I would ask him if he is a beetle. <laughs> 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 like pisses the guy off. He's like, that's not the way this is supposed to work. <laughs> but yeah, so can you talk about Strochek a little bit? Yeah, so
0: Strochek starts, and the the title character is is Bruno S. His name is. Um... Bruno Strocek, and he's getting out of jail. And you never know what he's in jail for, but it's implied that he's an alcoholic. So immediately he gets out of jail, goes to a bar and sort of like strikes up a conversation with a prostitute who he's already friends with. And she's kind of in trouble with her pimp. So he invites her to come live with him. And he lives also with this older man who's like a friend. The first part of the movie is basically about them being harassed by these pimps. And then they decide the old man has a nephew that lives in America in Wisconsin on a farm. So they decide that they're going to move to America. And so the the middle part of the movie is, is about them on this journey to a new land and kind of about their wonderment of you know, leaving Germany and coming to America. And they're optimistic. So part of it is about the this experience of chasing the American dream quickly realized in most of the uh, American dream movies, the American dream is not for all. And it's (laughs) it's kind of a false bill of goods. But the movie at that point is kind of about the the breakup of their friendship and about their expectations for America. And it has a very famous striking final scene with that is just a dancing chicken. (laughs) I I didn't watch any of the documentaries beyond the Burden of Dreams, which was not actually a documentary by Werner Herzog It was about Werner Herzog, but Mm -hmm. maybe you can talk about some of them because he's done
1: quite a few. So there's the grizzly man that came out a few years back and it's about a guy named Timothy Treadwell and all the footage is actually shot by almost all the footage is shot by Treadwell himself Mm -hmm. and Herzog compiled it from 90, like almost 90 hours that the guy had filmed. And for thirteen summers, the guy went and would live in Alaska with the wild animals, especially mm-hmm. bears and foxes. And throughout the movie, this character of Treadwell really starts to manifest itself. But one of the the big happening at the end of the movie is Tread, Treadwell's mauled to death by one of the bears that he's befriended, mm-hmm. and not just mauled; he's decapitated and shredded into a bunch of little pieces. And oh, then the God. bear also killed his girlfriend. And <laughs> Herzog, you know, in explaining why he was drawn to this subject, said. I've seen this madness on a movie set before and it just, it brought me back to Klaus Kinski, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, I guess the audio of the bear attack was caught on camera and it was left. It was delivered after it happened to the ex-girlfriend of Treadwell who they they were still close, Mm -hmm. uh, but hadn't listened to it. So on camera, Herzog listens to it without playing it for the, the the documentary, mm-hmm. and you just watch him react to it. And afterwards, he's like, "That was the most terrible thing I've ever heard." You did destroy this without listening to it. And the the ex girlfriend she ends up putting in a safe deposit box without listening to it. But I thought it was really striking that he didn't include the actual audio. You know, I remember seeing Bow- Bowling for Columbine by Michael Moore. Yeah, and he plays the footage of the Columbine massacres. It left me thinking, how would have Herzog played that differently? and i mm-hmm. almost feel like he would have left the footage of out and focused on the impact that it had on other people mm-hmm. you know michael moore's documentary is powerful for its own reasons but it, you know it led me to think that you know there might have been a better way to do it if you if you are being
0: guided through the story by someone and then you see the emotional impact on them like in some ways that is probably like more impactful right because you've mm-hmm. you've trusted this person or
1: in some way that they're they're your guide right and, you know, Timothy Treadwell, he's really allowed to sort of explain himself. There's not a lot of editorializing. And a lot mm-hmm. of the, the decisions this guy makes are questionable at best. Mm-hmm. But the end product is you get this really robust picture of a, a person who just wanted to sort of find his place in the world. Another documentary I watched was Encounters at the End of the World. And it, it, it's, it, it's funny. The movie starts off with Herzog taking some swipes at March of the Penguins. <laughs> <laughs> He's <laughs> like, the National Science Foundation allowed me to go to Antarctica, even though I assured them I would not come up with another film about fluffy penguins. <laughs> <laughs> what is this film about? So it's it's sort of, there's two aspects to it. On one hand, there is a lot of footage that I don't know if he or a cinematographer or one of the divers took, but of the animals, that are, the, the sea creatures that are living under the ice uh, in Antarctica
0: mm-hmm. and
1: they're like way weirder than anything that was in the aliens of the best of uh, the abyss movie by Cameron. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's really striking, you know, and it's just somebody going through with the camera and you see all these really weird sea star looking things. And, you know, it was, it was just a really alien world. And then on the other hand, a lot of it's focused on the people that are drawn to be in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the, the guy who drives Ivan, the Terra bus, Mm -hmm. And, you know, when, when they pop his name up on the screen at screen, I don't remember what it was. It says like the first thing it lists is philosopher and almost (laughs) everybody who's down there, like almost takes a philosophical view of why they're there. But it's really interested in like the bigger questions about nature, the why and what draws Mm -hmm. people on the, on the one, on the one hand, yeah, you have the weird sea creatures, but then almost... As importantly, you have the, the sort of the weird human creatures that have, have mm-hmm. gone down there. It's
0: clear that he considers us like not separate from nature, but part of nature. You know, mm-hmm. I think that that is a very important point to make that, like, we are as much a subject as nature. And I think he considers them one and the same.
1: Absolutely. And there is there's one scene where he actually there's a tunnel that goes from the the main base that he was at in Antarctica all the way into the interior to under the, the geographic South Pole. And he sits there when he's there and talks to a guy for like five minutes about a fish that they've hidden there as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, there's this tunnel and it goes all the way to the South Pole and we have a frozen sturgeon that we've just hidden by a pipe. <laughs> but the, uh, movie, was I nom- watch this. the no- movie was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary. And it lost to Man on Wire, which pisses me off because Man on Wire was kind of bullshit. I don't know if you've seen it. I saw part of it. I got kind of bored, to be honest. Yeah, it's like just about a crazy French guy who wants to walk between the World Trade Center, <laughs> and like the guy was just an asshole. <laughs> give Give Herzog all the awards, man. Just
0: don't if he's up for something, just give him the award.
1: A, a lot of the interviews and things that I found about Herzog were conducted by Roger Ebert. And I got mm-hmm. the impression that they were close. And at the yeah. end of Encounters at the end of the world, he had, world, he actually devotes the movie to Roger Ebert, which I thought mm-hmm. was interesting. A filmmaker devoting a film to a critic.
0: I think Ebert really respected that like if you if you were gonna watch one of his film, Herzog's films, like you would always be surprised and challenged. Mm-hmm. To a critic, <laughs> I think that's what you want, right? Mm-hmm. You want you want nothing more than to avoid sitting through movies that are just retreads, recycling tropes, and you know. I think that <laughs> <laughs> they probably they probably found a friendship just in in like enjoying the possibility of film. Absolutely, Herzog as a personality, one thing that I think we we didn't touch on at the beginning, but um, Herzog is a character that is is has permeated popular culture, right? And mm-hmm. so he recently popped up in The Mandalorian. Yeah, he played the
1: client, the guy who asks asks the Mandalorian to go retrieve the child. And he, he comes across as like really sinister. In, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think they just take full advantage of his like thick German accent.
0: Yeah. He seems like he's having fun in that role. Oh, yeah. They,
1: <laughs> the and opportunity he, to be sinister is, is like, hell yeah. <laughs> and he he pokes fun at himself. There was a, a movie, a kid's movie called Penguins in Madagascar. Uh-huh. And at one point, there's a documentarian who's like making a documentary about penguins. And it's Mm -hmm. he's played by Werner Herzog. (laughs) It's one of those things that kids are never going to catch. But like, I was chuckling. He realizes that like, there's a little bit of a silly aspect to
0: to his persona, and he's Mm going to play it up because you know you might as well at this point in your career.
1: (laughs) And then he was recently interviewed by a skateboarding magazine, where they played him (laughs) footage of some guys skateboarding, and like asked him to comment on it, and he like was commenting like the type of music. He's like, oh, I would use a a Russian choir to like symbolize the, the, the mystical nature of what they're doing. And they started overlaying it with the Russian choir. And it was, <laughs> you know, he was just really game to sort of, yeah, like you said, poke fun at himself. Just to, to touch on the music part
0: of it. I mean, one thing that I really liked about his earlier films is that the German band Popol, the did this, did this, the scores for several of those, but they did Fitzcarraldo, uh Aguirre, Nosferatu. and, Popolva thus started as a krautrock band, so they kind of came up in the late late sixties, early seventies, kind of along with bands like Can and Noya. and then kind of like morphed into becoming more of, I think, inspired by world music, mm-hmm. and then started to do the scores for for Werner Herzog's films. Um, but the Nosferatu score is the one that stood out to me. Like I thought that it was really unsettling in all the right ways, and it mm-hmm. it kind of like defied what I thought of as like a horror soundtrack. It didn't ma- try to telegraph what was going to happen as much as what usually happens in a mm-hmm. horror movie. I think it really felt more naturalistic, which it was really interesting to me.
1: Yeah, I, I think I, I would agree with that. I mean, one of the things that I was wondering at when I was watching it was when Jonathan Harker's wandering through the forest trying to find mm-hmm. Castle Dracula, he, uh, like, the the score is almost, like, cheery. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it, it feels like it's commensurate with what's happening. Is it diegetic? Is that the word where the characters, the assumption that the characters can hear the music as well? Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I think that's the word diegetic, if I'm saying that correctly. But that's I think that like that drives a lot of the music in the film, which is that it's not this like thing that's happening separately for the audience. This is part of the experience. Mm-hmm.
1: So, Dave, any closing thoughts? So I Never had one had more like... story that we didn't, we didn't how it didn't really fit into the podcast that I wanted to mm-hmm. share. Yeah. So it's an apocryphal story that he brought his first film by hand. He walked it from Bavaria to Paris. Uh-huh. Why was one he of... delivering it to Paris? Well, so that was the, uh, I think it was for like a film festival. Oh, okay. The actual story was it, in November, 1974, There was a German actress named Lottie Eisner, and she was seriously ill and was going to die. And someone called him. And so he said, this must not be, not at this time. German cinema cannot do without her now. We would not permit her death. I took a jacket, a compass, and a duffel bag with the necessities. My boots were so solid and new that I had confidence in them. I set off on the most direct route to Paris in full faith, believing that she would stay alive if I came on foot. Besides, I wanted to be alone with myself. And when he got there, she was recovering obviously, I don't think her recovery had anything to do with his, his walk, but sort of his viewpoint that there's this mm-hmm. mystical connection between man and nature. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so it, it kind of goes along with this idea he has that that tourism is a sin. Like I've read a couple um, interviews where he says that like he really believes that tourism is really driving that not only the destruction of ecosystems, but the mm-hmm. destruction of, of human culture. You know, he believes that culture the unique parts of cultures around the world and and this this comes up in in burden of dreams he Mm -hmm. he talks about losing these cultures in the middle of the amazon like every year we lose a language or more and we become more and more consumed into the sort of like monoculture of of globalism in america but the tourism is is bad And he really believes on traveling by foot. (laughs) He he like, that's a big part of who he, who he is. He believes in getting, getting out in nature and being part of it. And if you're going to travel, like do it by foot, if you can, and just be a human. This was a good conversation. So what are we going to talk about next week? I'm going to
1: suggest Dracula.
0: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> but we'll just we'll just build off of this discussion on Nosferatu there's so many good Dracula movies out there
1: and there's so many bad ones too <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> this has been one tiny grain of sand amidst the infinite beach of the universe and I'm Steve and thank you for joining us this week on Planet of the Meerkats hooty hoo Planet of the Meerkats is produced by Neil Fries and David Garrison, and our theme music is by Tawny Frogmouth.